I'll tell you, one of the first text messages I got this morning was an article from the New York Times, and I don't remember exactly what the title was, but I think it was something like, uh, America is facing five, and I remember the word epic, crises all at the same time. And I thought, you know, in my fight for joy, as Matt was just talking about, it would not be good for me to read this. So I decided I was not going to read it, at least not first thing in the morning. Uh, I don't need that. I need this. This is what I need. I need, as Julianne said, to come together and to sing that song with you guys and with you guys. And I need to know that, you know what, we're not the only church doing it. But as she also said, there are churches all over the city that are doing it. I need to know that. I need to remember that we're in a storm, but we have a God who creates the storm, who ordains the storm, who guides the storm, who directs the storm. We see Jesus. He sleeps in the storm. Why? Because he's at peace. He's not worried about anything anything. And he speaks to the storm and he tells it to be still. You know, Julianne mentioned that that's a song that was written by a group of worship leaders here in South Florida called the Village Hymns. I would encourage you to check out the Village Hymns. They have three albums. Go download all their music. That was one of their songs. I love that particular song, but I love a lot of the other songs that they have. Uh, But the vision of Village Hymns of which, and she didn't tell you this either, she is the creative director So this is her full-time job. I love the vision. Listen to this. The vision is to see Christ-centered and vibrant worship fuel a revival in South Florida. That's it. Like, I heard that. I'm like, I don't know. I'm in. Like, I don't know what I need to do, but can I be a part of this? Because that sounds fantastic to me. It's exactly what I'm looking for. And I want to tell you those things because I want you to realize that we're not the only church talking about revival. We're not the only group of people hopefully longing for revival. We're not the only folks who are praying for revival. Churches all over Broward County, all over South Florida, all over our country, and all over the world are doing exactly the same thing. And I'll tell you what, I think that it may be a revival that comes through the minstrels, through the worship pastors, through the musicians, Because as I'm looking at all of the music coming out right now, topic number one, revival. It's remarkable, and it wouldn't be the first time. Wales has seen several revivals. The most famous is the 1904 revival. You know what pushed it forward? It wasn't preaching. It was music. It was worship. So as Matt said, as we bring our study of revival to a close today, here's what I want to be sure that you understand. We are not bringing our pursuit of revival to a close today. We are beginning our pursuit of revival together today. That's it. So this whole thing has not been informational only. It's not been a history lesson. It's not been a walk down memory lane. It's not been a, hey, look at what God did once. Wow, that must have been awesome. It's a season of time in which we've come to understand what it is and isn't, what it looks like, what the goal of it is, what keeps it away, what brings it. What we can do, it's a season of time, I hope, in which God is working within every one of us a hunger to see revival come into our own hearts and lives personally, into our own families and homes, into this church, into the church, in this region and all over the world. Like, that's what we need. And I'm sorry, but the five epic crisis alarm that's going on right now makes that pretty clear, at least to me. There's an answer, and the answer is the Lord alone. He's the only one who sleeps in the storm and who speaks to it and makes it still. He's the only one who takes messes, people like me, like you, and things like all that's going on in the world today and redeems them and brings good out of them. 
and makes them beautiful. So here's what I want to do. I want to close this study by looking at somebody who is revived. I want to look at the pre-revival person. I want to look at the revival moment. And I want to look at immediately after the revival moment. And I want you to see the post-revival person. Because what I want you to see is that post-revival guy is dramatically different than pre-revival guy. And I want you to long for that. Because you know where revival begins? It begins with me and it begins with you. It starts with us. So the person that I want to look at is the biblical character of Jacob. And the first thing I want you to know about Jacob is that he was perfectly named. Like when his mom and dad sat down and they said, we need a name for this kid, they crushed it. And the reason for that is because the meaning of his name perfectly fits pre-revival him. His name means deceiver. His name means supplanter. One who wants to pull down so that he can step up. Grabber, grasper. Grabber and grasper of things that don't belong to him. He's a me first guy. That's who he is. But here's the important part. So am I. (laughs) So are you. Don't reject Jacob too quickly in this story. But look at Jacob and see in him where you're similar. I think as you look at him, you'll go, oh, I hate to admit it, but the resemblance is just striking. Guys, it is. And you see this grabbing, this grasping, this supplanting, you know, idea in his heart from the moment this guy is born. He is the second born twin. He has a twin brother named Esau who was the firstborn. And as they're taking Esau out of mom, where's Jacob? Because he's not sitting in there waiting for his turn. He is hanging on to Esau's foot like they pull one out and he comes out with him as if to say from birth, no, 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 not him, me, me, me first. It's about me. I want to advance me. That's exactly what he does. As the firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah, Esau, would have by tradition been rightfully entitled to the birthright. The birthright was a really big deal. I mean, the birthright meant that whoever that son was that had the birthright, like when the father got older before the father died, but when he got older, when his capacities were diminishing, that son would have slid into the leadership position of Isaac Incorporated, okay? And Isaac Incorporated was enormous. Isaac was wealthy like a king. He did not have small holdings. He had an enormous operation. He gets the position of leadership. He gets the position of honor. He sets the pace, the temperature, etc., for the whole of the family. He calls all of the shots. Everyone submits to him. And in a family in which there were only two sons, and that's what we're dealing with here, he would have gotten, wait for it, 100% of the inheritance when father died. Not 50, not 80, not 90, not even 99. He gets everything. What does Jacob do? He's brilliant. He is so capable This man is incredibly gifted, and he's calculating, and he's patient. And so he waits, and he diagnoses his brother rightly. His brother is overrun by his passions. His brother is frankly not the better of the two to rule the family. His brother does not rightly appreciate the birthright, though it, again, by custom, convention, tradition, belongs to him. And so Jacob waits until his brother is at a moment of greatest weakness, and then he gets his brother to sell him the birthright, everything I just described and more, in return for a bowl of stew. True story. Like, I mean, if that happened today, you could just take it down to the courthouse and go, listen, 
Look at the inequity here. I mean, look at how unfair this is. I, I, I did this, yes, but I did it under duress. Like, I was under pressure. I was in an intense moment. I obviously made a decision that was not good. I was pressured into this thing. I was deceived. I was fraud, defrauded. I was this, I was that. You could get that overturned. Not then. So Jacob now has the birthright. But he's still hanging on to the foot. Because there's something else to get, and that's the blessing. You've got to remember, this is the family of Abraham, which, by the way, as we see the dysfunction of the family of Abraham, is going to make you feel better about your family, particularly during the season of quarantine, okay? Like, all of a sudden, you're going to go home going, I'm not such a bad parent after all, and my kids are actually not terrible. They're not. But these guys, the blessing of the family of Abraham carried forward divine potency, divine power, Divine blessing of fertility and dominion over all things. Please know this is the family of God that God has chosen out of all of the earth through whom to bring the Christ one day. Isaac's blessing, really big deal. So Isaac ages, he becomes blind. That means he lives in darkness. Hang on to that. And he calls Esau into his tent one day and he says, son, you know that you're my favorite. Like I've never made any bones about this. Your mom likes Jacob. And I love you. I don't have much time for him. He's already taken your birthright. We can't undo that. It isn't 2020. We don't have a courthouse. We don't have all these legal arguments and I don't have good lawyers. So we can't fix that. But here's what I can do. I can give you, my son, the blessing. And that's a big deal. So here's what I want you to do. I'm an old man. All I can enjoy at this point is food. I want you to go out. I want you to get catch some wild game. I want you to cook it up just the way that I like to eat it. And you know exactly how that is. Then I want you to bring it to me. I'm going to eat it. and I'm going to give you the patriarchal blessing. And Esau is like, thank you, Jesus, because finally, at least I get something great out of this deal. And he goes hunting. And in comes Jacob. His mother overhears the whole thing. Again, he's the one mom likes. And they quickly concoct a plan. So Jacob goes out to the family farm, he gets two goats, he kills them, he brings them to mom. Mom knows the secret recipe, so she makes it, so the food tastes like the food of Esau. Jacob runs over to Esau's tent, he puts on Esau's clothes, he comes out, you know, like hoping nobody sees him, and he he goes back over there so that he smells like Esau. He takes the skins of the animals, and he puts them on his arms and on his hands and on his neck. Why? Because Esau is, you know, like a rugged outdoorsman. He's like super hairy guy. I guess he felt like a goat. I don't know what else to say. It's just that is the case. Jacob didn't. But he wanted to feel like, like Esau. And his father's in darkness. He's blind. He comes in there with the tasty Esau tasting food. And he says, Father, arise and eat. And give me the patriarchal blessing. And if you could hurry it up, that'd be good, because Esau's going to be showing up at some point, and it's going to get ugly then. And Isaac says, who are you? What is your name? Hang on to that, too. And in the context of seeking a blessing from a father, what does Jacob, the deceiver, the grabber, the grasper, the supplanter do? He lies. He says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. Of course, I brought the food. You're going to taste it. It tastes just like Esau. I mean, my food. You're going to like that. So eat it up. Eat it quick. Let's get this knocked out. Give me the blessing. Dad says, no, come here for a minute. I I I want to smell you. 
Hmm, you smell like Esau. I'm going to feel your arms. You know what? Esau's kind of like a goat. That works. You feel like Esau. It's fascinating. He actually says out loud, but the voice is Jacob's. And then he eats. And he gives Jacob the blessing. Jacob leaves. Esau shows up. They all then figure out what happened. And Isaac and Rebekah call Jacob in and they say, listen, buddy, um, you have to leave. And uh, two reasons. One, your brother is going to kill you. And that's not a joke. That's not like, I mean, like, he is going to kill you if you stay. And two, you are the one chosen of God, not your brother. You are the one who has the birthright and the blessing. You will carry on the seed of the Lord. It will come through you or one of your sons. And you need to find a wife, and you can't take a wife from around here. I mean, all these Canaanite women bring their gods into the marriage, and this is the covenant family of God. And so, look, here's the deal. You know, you need to go and find a wife from amongst your mother's family, where I found her. So we're going to send you to the land of Haran. We're going to send you to her brother Laban's family, and from his family, find a bride. And so he goes. But you're getting a feel for his character, right? And not just for his character, but for his intellect. Again, super capable mentally. Really, really gifted. And not just intellectually, but physically. You know, Jacob gets kind of a a bad rap somehow for like being this weak, lame mama's boy. And you know, Esau's like the hairy guy and he's the strong one. Yeah, that's not true. Jewish legend has Jacob as a giant. Now, I don't think he was actually a giant, but this is a guy who could beat you with his mind or with his body. He was a seriously strong, physically kind of guy. And we know that because he goes to the land of Haran. He finally arrives. He's all by himself. So he is the chosen son of the father who leaves the father's land and all the father's wealth behind to go to a foreign country to find a bride. He shows up. And he goes to the well, which is the meeting place for the town. So he shows up at the well, and there's these three shepherds sitting around, and they've all got their flocks, you know. And he's like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, well, you know, I mean, we're, we're waiting. Well, what are you waiting for? Why don't you water your flocks? And they're like, because there's an enormous stone on the well, and frankly, three of us are not strong enough to move it. And so, you know, we wait until we get five or six, and then all together we, we heave it off. And Jacob's like, I don't know what it's like to be as wimpy as the three of you, but that's fine, whatever. I'm not here for a drink. You know, I'm not here to water flocks. I'm here to find my uncle. Do you know who my uncle Laban is? Yes. Do you know where he is? Yes. Oh, by the way, they say, there's his daughter, Rachel, his younger daughter. He has two, two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Two daughters, Rachel, really beautiful, younger brother, Leah, less physically beautiful, but favored of the Lord, incidentally, older sister. And he sees Rachel and he, he's smitten like he just, that's it, he's done. He falls in love. He's like, that's the one. And he walks over to the stone on the well by himself and he just heaves it off and says, go for it, boys. But after I water her flock, because she was coming with sheep. Amazing. 
His uncle Laban takes him in and he says, hey, listen, uh, I want to marry your daughter. No, 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 not that one. Not that. I want to marry this one. I want to marry this one. I, this one, Rachel, this is the one. And Laban says, hey, listen, I know your father's wealthy. I know his land is wealthy. I know his kingdom is vast. I know all of those things. It doesn't do me any good. He's in another country. I can't access that wealth. You can't access that wealth. And you need to pay me a dowry for my daughter. You need to compensate me for her loss because that's the way it works. So what are you going to do that with? Laban says, I'll make you a deal. You work for me for seven years. At the end of seven years, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. Jacob's like, right on. I mean, I'm in love. I don't care. I'll just do it. But think about that. Seven years. Like it's June of 2020. That would be June of 2027. This man's committed. He is a lot tied up in this relationship. He's going, yes, whenever finally she's mine, I will have arrived. I'll be blessed. So he works the seven years. Gets to the wedding day on the night of the wedding. When it came time to consummate the marriage, instead of giving him Rachel, the younger, more beautiful one that he just worked seven years for, Laban does the old switcheroo and he gives to Jacob. Think how sick this is. He gives him Leah in the darkness of the night. Wait a minute, what does darkness do? It blinds you. And Jacob doesn't know the difference. Till the light of day, light brings sight. And what it revealed to him on that particular morning is that he was now married to the wrong woman, at least in his mind. And he's none too happy about it. So he goes and he confronts his uncle. His uncle's like, listen, man, I, you know, I know that's not the way you thought it was going to play out, but... Curiously enough, we have a tradition around here. So the tradition is we don't marry the younger daughter off first. We marry the older daughter off first. And since there were no other suitors and you want to marry the younger daughter, the way it works is you first have to marry the older daughter, which, by the way, you have to pay a dowry for too. So you just work seven years for her. If you want daughter number two, then you have to work another seven years. How happy is he right now? But how ironic is this? Jacob, who deceives his father in the darkness of his blindness, is himself deceived in the blindness of darkness. Jacob, who violated all the conventions and the traditions to steal the blessing that belonged to the older brother, is just himself now violated by conventions and traditions that said, well, if you want to marry the younger one, you got to marry the older one first. It's ironic. It's unmasking. He had in that moment to realize that in looking at his uncle, he was looking at himself. And he was learning what it felt like to be on the other side of that equation. And it didn't feel good. So he works another seven years. He's not just smart, he's not just strong, he's determined. He's driven. And he's thinking to himself, finally, I'm going to be happy. He marries Rachel. He's not happy. Happiness just avoids this man. He can't seem to find it for himself. He wants the blessing of his father, which, by the way, at least technically and legally he gets, but he has to trick him. He has to defraud his brother to get it. His father didn't love him. He loved the other son. So he got the blessing, but not really. 
He wanted the blessing, no doubt, of his uncle. Lived with his uncle for 20 years all in. What he found is that his uncle was only capable of loving himself, and in his uncle he found a picture of himself, like the ultimate me first guy. No, 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 not him, me. He thought that he would be happy with Rachel, but he invited Rachel into the most dysfunctional possible situation. He's been married to her older sister who he never loved and who he never wanted to marry, and she knows it, and he knows it, and everyone knows it including Rachel. (laughs) Finally, he gets the one that he loves. So how do you think wife number one felt about wife number two? Not very good. But God favored Leah. And he gave her, at least initially, all the kids. So wife number two is looking at wife number one just as resentfully. Meanwhile, Jacob is caught up in the center. Listen, I guarantee you he had his own tent and it was like a mile away from everybody else. Miserable. Unhappy. Six years after he marries Rachel, he's had enough of his uncle. He can't handle it anymore. This guy is just sticking it to him left and right, deceiving him left and right, and trying to take advantage of him left and right. I mean, he's just, he's not even faking it anymore. He's just being brutal. And so he says, that's it. I'm going to take my wives. I'm going to take my kids. I'm going to take all the flocks and herds that God did. In fact, he has the blessing of potency of fertility. Bless him with. He came to this land with no one but himself. He leaves the land with a host of people and animals. And I'm going to go back to my father's land. I'm going to take my bride and kids with me. Even if that means I have to face my brother Esau, which of course it does. And there's no sneaking up on Esau. I mean, what's he going to walk in the door and go, hey, I'm home. You know, like he's coming with all of these flocks and herds and people. So he sends messengers ahead. Says, tell Esau I'm coming. And what that meant from Esau's perspective is coming for what? Coming to take over. Coming to claim And step into the role that you stole from me. And take everything that you stole 20 years ago. You're coming to take over. So the messengers come back and they say, all right, so we got good news and we got bad news. What do you want first? Jacob's like, you know what? I'm a good news guy. Give it to me first. That'll help me with the bad news. All right, so the good news is your brother is so excited that you're coming home that he is riding out to meet you. Great. What's the bad news? The bad news is he's coming with 400 armed-to-the-teeth guys. And Jacob then does what only a 100% me-first person would do. Think about this. He takes his family, Leah and her kids and servants, and he divides them into two camps, Rachel and her kids and servants, And then with Leah at the front, so, you know, if there's going to be a slaughter, it's going to start with her. How lovely. And he puts them all in between him and his brother who is approaching with an army. And he takes his place at the back of the line. In other words, he uses his family, his servants, his animals, his everything as a human shield to guard himself. And he stays behind. And the night before Esau arrives, he plans to spend the night alone. 
but it's not how it works out. So it says in Genesis 32, beginning of verse 24, that Jacob was left alone, which I think is instructive because he's going to meet with the Lord here in a minute. I just want to say to all of us, listen, if you meet with God, there's a sense in which you do it alone. Now, there might be people around you, I get that. There might be somebody praying with you, I get that. But all of a sudden, your religion, your faith is not civic, it's not moral, it's not social, it's not cultural, it doesn't belong to your parents, it doesn't belong to your siblings, it doesn't belong to somebody you know who you work with, who tells you about it. And like All of a sudden, you realize, I have to individually and personally establish a relationship with the true and the living God, and that involves oftentimes struggle. What is the struggle? It's to admit who you are, your need for him. And it's to surrender to him and let him change you. And when you've built your identity on this, that, or the other thing, when you're used to advancing you and and promoting you and, and it's all about you, man, it's just not easy. says that Jacob was left alone, and then we read that a man whom the rest of the story makes it clear is God, who, by the way, condescends to the power and strength of Jacob, which for a guy is significant, but not really for God. He wrestled with Jacob until the break of day. What happens at the break of day? The light comes and chases away the darkness that blinds you. Light brings sight. You begin to see things more clearly what you're really dealing with, what's really going on. It says he wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of day when the man who is God saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Why? Because Jacob, again, was not just brilliant and strong. He was driven. He was determined. He was a fighter. He was a scrapper. God said, all right, listen, you know, the games are over. Let me just kind of give you a tiny little display of my power. And he just touched his hip. Touch touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip, which is the pivot of the wrestler's strength, was put out of joint as he wrestled with God. And on a practical matter, guys, at that point, the wrestling match is over. Jacob knows it. God knows it. I know it. Look, it's done. He has no power. He has no strength. And so, you know, even though the scriptures don't tell us exactly how he was postured in that moment, and I don't have a picture of it, I'm kind of picturing a guy who has been wrestling against someone who's as strong as him, actually stronger, but has condescended down to his strength to just equal it out. So they fought literally all night long. He is completely and totally exhausted. Oh, by the way, his hip is out of joint. I see him laying on the ground, probably on his face. Says that he clung to God. I think he grabbed his foot. He was born like that. And I think he's being reborn like that. One kind of grabbing gave him a name that worked for him perfectly. This kind of grabbing is different. It will give him a new name. An encounter is profound. says that God touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put on a joint as he wrestled with him. And then God said, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go. I got your foot. Unless you bless me, because that's what I've been chasing all along, blessing. 
I wanted it from my father. That really didn't pan out. I wanted it from my uncle. Man, did I try hard. That didn't work. I worked 14 years for Rachel. I thought this would be marital bliss, and it's been a nightmare. I have applied my considerable intellect, my considerable gifting, my considerable strength, my unrelenting determination and drivenness to gaining things for me, for building me. And I don't know. I mean, look at me. I got nothing. My family is out there as my human shield right now. (laughs) My brother's coming to kill me. He says, I'm not going to let you go until or unless you bless me. And God said to him, and I love it, what is your name? That's been 20 years in the making. What is your name? And here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, I don't know, you know, you smell like Jacob. Your food tastes like Jacob. Your hand is smooth, definitely not Esau, so you must be Jacob. Your voice even sounds like Jacob. I mean, it's striking, but before I give you the blessing, I'm going to have to see some identification just to be sure. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, hey, listen, buddy, the last time you were asked this question by a father from whom you were looking for a blessing, you lied. Are you going to come clean with me? And he does. He says, my name is Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. I'm a grabber. I'm a grasper. I like, again, family, human shield. I mean, like, what else do you need to know? That's who I am. And God says, well, that's not who you're going to be from now on. In light of the honest confession, God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, because from now on that name's not going to fit, but Israel, one who strives with God. For you have striven with God and with men, and by prayer, not by your intellectual gifting or physical strength or determination, but by prayer, you have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, but why do I need to tell you my name? Like, haven't you figured this out yet? Which he has. And there it says, God blessed Jacob. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God, saying, for I have seen the face, or I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And then what happens? The sun rose upon him, and he saw everything in a different light. As he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And then do you know what he did? He went from the back of the line to the front of the line. He went to his family and said, guys, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Get behind me. And as a broken and yet in some cases healed man, he went forward by himself limping to go meet his brother and the 400 armed men who were riding to meet him. No scheme is going to get him out of this one. No physical strength. He doesn't have any physical strength left, but, you know, it's still 401 to 1. No amount of determination is going to fix it. No gift is going to rescue him. And yet he goes more powerfully than he's ever been. Why? Because he goes forward in the strength and in the blessing of the Lord. 
who delivers him from his brother. It's remarkable. Here's what a revived person does not look like. They don't look like deceivers, supplanters, grabbers, graspers, me first and everyone else second kind of people. And yet if we examine ourselves, we got some of that, right? Don't we? They don't look like someone who's insecure, always running scared, an island to himself, always feeling the need to prop himself up, defend himself, come to his own rescue, justify himself, promote himself from a position of fear or insecurity. Instead, they look like someone who, by God's grace and through prayer, has received the blessing of God and, much to their surprise, has discovered that, you know what, the blessing of God is actually what I've been looking for all along. And as a result, I'm free. It's a blessing bought and paid for by Jesus, the true son of the true father who left the true promised land and all of that true wealth to enter into this world to find a bride. And it was himself then killed. He faced his Esau. Actually, he faced ours and was struck down in justice for our sin. It's remarkable. He lays his perfect life down and then retakes it again because that's how powerful he is. But he lays it down that we might be forgiven and set free. And his love is so much greater than Jacob's because he loves those who don't look like Rachel. And I don't mean physically. I mean morally. (laughs) We're not pure. We're not beautiful. And he takes us in. He runs to us. No humiliation. No second-class anything. And his love is so powerful that he makes us what we're not. He makes us pure and beautiful and righteous and holy and fit companions for the Son of God, the true Jacob himself. And it's in that identity that we're free to let other things go. You know, as I said several weeks ago, God doesn't come to you and say, okay, empty yourself out and then ask you to remain empty. He says, no, 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 empty yourself out so that you can be full of me because I'm better. And when you're full of me, you can take risks and fail. You know, you can be generous and let things go because your identity is not built on keeping and gaining and building and stuff. Your security is in him. You can forgive It's remarkable. So I close with this, three questions. Who or what have you been looking to for blessing? What blessing are you chasing, man? Because it's like Jesus is going, hey, I'm right over here. And I got this. Trust me on this one. Come grab my foot. Ask me in prayer. I want you to. I have this for you. Secondly, who or what are you wrestling with right now? Five epic crises, you know? And then that just adds on to whatever we're already dealing with. Who or what are you wrestling with right now? And have you considered that maybe what or who you're wrestling with is actually God himself? And he's fighting against you to fight for you. Guys, his wounds heal us. It's remarkable. And then lastly, what is your name? Because it might not be deceiver or supplanter or grabber or grasper. It might be lustful. Maybe it's that. It might be materialistic. It might just be wounded and hurt and insecure, resentful, angry, 
What is your name? Because God in love calls you forward and says, hey, come to me with the name you've got, okay? And then let me, through my son Jesus and by the power of my spirit, change you so that name doesn't fit anymore and give you a new name. Would you come to him this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a love that is greater than the love of Jacob because we confess freely that we are not Rachel. No, not really. Lord, we thank you that you love those who are hard to love. We thank you that your, your love is powerful enough to cover over all of our mistakes, to heal, Lord, all of our wounds, that your designs for us are good, and even when you wrestle with us and wound us, you wrestle and wound us, Lord, that you might set us free. You're fighting for us. God, we pray for your blessing. We pray for the blessing of your salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. We pray for the blessing of your spirit that you would fill us entirely with you. And we pray for the blessing of revival. We ask, Lord, that you would come and give us this divine season of the special visitation in which your Holy Spirit comes and wakes up your sleeping people. Give us a hunger to experience you. And Lord, satisfy our hunger. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.